we'll go ahead and start the TPA there in CAT scan and put them back to the scanner for a CT angiogram or a CAT scan with some, with some contrast dye. And then that will determine, is TPA going to be enough for a small vessel occlusion? Or do we have to go further and do a thrombectomy and suck this big old clot out? Welcome to the Rapid Response RN Podcast, helping you keep your finger on the pulse of your patient's condition with real life stories from the front lines of nursing. This podcast can help you sharpen your assessment skills, improve your ability to recognize the signs and symptoms of your patient's decline, be inspired to speak up and advocate, and know how to jump into action to promote the best outcome for your patients. Hey everybody, I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. On today's episode, you will actually get to hear the podcast recording that I did on another podcast. I was interviewed by the Up My Nursing Game podcast with Annie Fulton. And if you have not checked out her podcast yet, you totally should. Her heart is similar to mine in wanting to give back to the nursing profession through education, uh, through the podcast medium. Anyways, this episode is jam-packed full of all things stroke. And so if you've ever wondered, like, what am I supposed to do if a stroke alert is called or how am I supposed to handle this patient or what can I expect? This episode is for you. I really enjoyed talking to Annie and breaking down a topic that I love to talk on. So uh, as soon as I stop talking, you'll get to hear Annie's voice and the recording from her podcast, episode number 39 of Up My Nursing Game. Check it out. All right. Welcome, Sarah Lorenzini, to the podcast. She is a rapid response nurse and educator who teaches nurses how to respond to emergencies. She hosts the podcast Rapid Response RN and has just launched an online course, which I'm excited to ask you about. She's passionate about equipping nurses with knowledge, skills, and confidence to jump into action when their patients are crashing. All right, Sarah, welcome. Hello, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have you here today and hear more about your role as a rapid response nurse and what you have to share with our listeners. Can you just tell us a little bit like about how you got to this point in your career that led you to be a rapid response nurse and educator? Absolutely. Well, first of all, I love being a rapid response nurse. It is my favorite job. <laughs> it's like an intersection of all the things that I love into one position. But I started my career in the ER as a brand new ER nurse in 2004, so 18 years ago. I just fell in love with taking care of patients and their families in crisis. That is just like the joy of my career. It sounds so crazy that I love crisis, but I really do love stepping in and bringing calm and peace in a really scary situation. So I did ER nursing for a while and discovered I love teaching new grads. This is so much fun. And so I went back to grad school to get my master's degree in nursing education. And in grad school, all my professors were like, you need to expand your horizons outside of the ER. So I did. And I went and worked in the cardiac ICU of a big trauma center. I learned so much. I love the ICU. And then I was asked to be on the rapid response team at that hospital. So I did rapid response nursing there. And then I finally finished that master's degree and I got a job as a nursing professor and I loved it, but I did it for only one year because as much as I love the students and getting to teach clinicals, I really miss being the nurse and being the one that's providing that care to the patient. Then COVID hit. 
And that's when I was like, oh man, I want to be back at the bedside. I want to be in the trenches with my team, fighting this virus, caring for these patients. And so the hospital that I work at now at the time didn't have a dedicated rapid response team. This is too crazy. Can I please start a rapid response team at the hospital? And so fortunately they gave me the ability to do that. And that has been just the greatest joy and privilege of my career to be able to recruit all of my favorite nurses from Auburn Hospital to build this really amazing team that gets to support nurses throughout the whole house. And then to get to be in the trenches, coming alongside my teammates to fight this virus and care for our patients. But as far as the podcast goes, sorry, I should answer that too. When I left the educator role, well, then I missed being an educator. <laughs> so I was like, man, what else can I do? So I started a podcast, which is called Rap Response RN. And in the podcast, it's similar to yours, but every Every episode, I share a real life story, a real rapid response call that I went on. And then I break down like the pathophysiology and the pharmacology and the nurse's role in caring for that patient. So I really love making the podcast. That's been something I never thought I would do, but here I am. I am a podcaster and it's a lot of fun as well. Yeah, it's a great podcast. It's really helpful to debrief afterwards and learn from other people's mistakes. (laughs) And yeah, like you said, like kind of see a rapid response through the rapid response nurse's eyes is just, Mm -hmm. it's really helpful. And I think it's a, it's a great podcast. If yeah, you, I, mean, uh, I was like you, I love all kinds of podcasts, but some of them are just so focused on like health and wellness. And that, that is so important, but I wanted to, I wanted to learn like the science, like, what do I need to do? Like, let's break down the pathophys. So the podcasts that I'm drawn towards typically are that, like, if I'm going to be spending 45 minutes, listening to this thing, I want to learn something. And so that's why yours is so great. Cause you really do delve into the stuff that they kind of just gloss over in nursing school. I have the same passion as you do. Let's give back to this career that we love so much and really empower nurses to do what's best for their patients. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm excited to talk to you today about the breakdown of stroke, starting from when a nurse decides to call a code stroke. Did you find as a rapid response nurse that you're getting a lot of calls early in the morning, like when patients are waking up, maybe after shift change? Because as a day shift nurse, I've had the experience of, you know, coming on shift, a patient's asleep, we don't want to wake them up. Sleep's hard to come by in the hospital. And then once the patient wakes up, I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This isn't what I was endorsed and handoff. This is a lot different. And I like, I don't want to mess around with it. Yeah. It's both as patients wake up and as family members start to arrive at the hospital to visit. Yes. <laughs> the family members yes. often will say, whoa, what's wrong with mom? Yeah. And, and so I'm glad you brought that up because I just want to stress the importance of waking that patient up at bedside shift report, not to like do a full assessment, you know, listen to all their heart sounds and check the pulse, not for all that, just a quick baseline. Does this person wake up? Are they talking to me? Is their speech clear? Just a quick to understand, like, what am I working with here? So if when you go back in an hour, two hours to give the morning meds, there's a change, you can confidently say, this is not the patient I met at 7 a.m. This is very different. So it seems so mean to wake up a sleeping grandma, <laughs> but I if know. you know you're doing it for her best interest. So let's say you arrive at a code stroke besides kind of doing a neuro assessment, like an NIH. Can we talk a little bit about the diagnostics that you want to get done with this patient? Every hospital has a different setup, but at our hospital for a stroke alert, it's going to be the neurologist or their nurse practitioner 
and the rapid response rate that shows up. So we kind of like convene around the same time. It's not like I have to do my NIH and they have to do their NIH. So I'm happy just to watch them do theirs and kind of see what they're what feedback they're getting. My job is to pack up and go. Our biggest priority is to get to CAT scan because I cannot offer any intervention until I know what kind of stroke the patient's having. So yes, an NIH stroke scale does have to be done before we administer anything, but it could be the neurologist that does it. We could be doing it kind of simultaneously. I'm on the side of the body, you're on the side of the body. But yeah, definitely NIH stroke scale, quick set of auto signs. So what's that blood pressure doing? That's really important. And then book it to CT. That is always my priority. So if you were to see me show, but a rapid, I'm listening to the nurse as I'm unplugging the bed from the wall and disconnecting everything, like getting ready to hustle the CAT scan. Cause the longer it, it takes us to like talk through this whole thing and do this whole neuro assessment, brain cells are dying. So I'll finish my NIH stroke scale in the elevator en route to CT, knowing that that CAT scan is so, so important. So we can actually know what the treatment is. Where do labs fit in all of this? Cause I imagine like we, you're talking about a wide differential here. If you're not sure this is stroke, right? Like how important is it to get something like a, a lactic on this patient? Lactic, not so much. The only big lab would be platelets. But a lot of times patients have already had that in the last 24 hours or so, they had labs drawn and we have a platelet count. But other than that, we're just going to go to CAT scan. We wouldn't even delay CAT scan waiting for a BUN and creatinine because we can always rinse out the kidneys afterwards. Because yes, we're worried about kidneys, but the brain is actually more important than the kidneys. <laughs> so, you know, old school thinking is like, wait, wait, we have to get a BUN and creatinine to see if they can handle the contrast. But if we're waiting for all that and brain cells are dying, like how are we really helping the patient? So CT first, we have to know what's going on. If we discover that the kidneys are kind of having a hard time filtering, sure, we can give some extra fluids later on, but CAT scan is always the first priority, even before labs. Let's talk about this CAT scan because I always think of a, a CAT scan for a stroke to be a non-con, but sorry, meaning a non-contrast, but you're saying that you sometimes do use contrast? Yeah. So to make the determination if a patient is going to get TPA or not, all you need is a non-contrast CT. And that's a quick in the scanner, out the scanner. We're really just looking for bleeding. You can't see on a non-contrast CT a clot. You can't see that. So as far as differentiating, is this ischemic stroke or hemorrhagic stroke? It's more like a we've ruled out hemorrhagic, so it must be ischemic. So that's the point of the non-contrast CT. So at least at our hospital, yes, non-contrast CT first thing. As soon as we get that, we can decide if this patient needs TPA or something else, which we'll talk about that in a minute. We'll go ahead and start the TPA there in CAT scan and put them back to the scanner for a CT angiogram or a CAT scan with some contrast dye. And that helps guide us to the next level of therapy. So this kind of is a great interlude into what else I want to talk about is the different types of therapy that's available for patients that are having a stroke. Everyone knows about TPA or tissue plasminogen activator. It's basically like a clot buster, antifibrillatic. It's a, it breaks up clots, right? It's like Drano for the blood vessels in the brain. It's big guns. It definitely has the risks that are associated, but most hospitals are at least a primary stroke center, which means they have the ability to administer TPA, at least start it, they may have to ship the patient out after TPA, but at least have the drug on site to start for the patient. There's also hospitals that are comprehensive stroke centers, and that's where, yes, they can get TPA, but they also have the ability to do a thrombectomy. And that is a really cool procedure where they grow in through the groin, feed a catheter all the way up into the brain, shoot some dye, 
figure out where the clot is and then literally grab hold of it, like suck the whole clot out, which is an even more effective therapy than TPA by itself. So for a small vessel occlusion or an ischemic stroke that's in a little vessel, a little tiny clot, TPA by itself usually is enough to break the thing up and, you know, clear out the pipes. <laughs> but for a large vessel occlusion, like your MCA, for example, a big old clot, the TPA really is just kind of kind of soften the borders of the clot. It will reduce the symptoms that the patient's experiencing, but it's probably not going to cure it completely. So that patient really does need a thrombectomy. So let me just parse apart a little bit of what you were talking about with the CT fast and going for a thrombectomy. So you're saying that once you get this initial CT non-contrast, that that basically rules out a hemorrhagic stroke versus ischemic, correct? Correct. Yep. And that's really all that it can do diagnostically. Okay. So, but you're saying that once you get contrast with a CT, you can see where the clot is. Is that correct? Yeah. It's not that you can see Oh, there's a clot, but you can see the damage that the clot has caused around that area of the brain and kind of determine, is this a large vessel occlusion or a small vessel occlusion? And then that will determine, is TPA going to be enough for a small vessel occlusion? Or do we have to go further and do a thrombectomy and suck this big old clot out? Okay. This is really interesting because I didn't realize how important getting contrast for the CT is. So just a CT non-con in and of itself, is that is that enough to rule in or rule out TPA? Yes. And a lot of facilities, that's all they do. You know, like, like a freestanding ER, for example, or maybe a smaller rural hospital, they'll get the non-contrast CT. They'll say, okay, it's not hemorrhagic. The patient meets criteria. We'll start the TPA and we'll get them going to a bigger hospital or a comprehensive stroke center or whatever the other hospital that can further care for that patient. But again, I work at a comprehensive stroke center. So after the TPA, what is the best therapy for the patient? Not just TPA alone, but there's even more we can do to promote, you know, revascularization or restored flow to the brain to promote the best outcome for the patient. It is just so cool to see that quick transformation from TPA and also from thrombectomy. I think that the most like, wow, transformation is the thrombectomy. TPA obviously is cool, but the thrombectomy is even cooler. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Can a patient get a thrombectomy who has also received TPA? Those two therapies go hand in hand. And I asked the same question. I was like, wait, we just gave them this really strong clot buster and you're going to poke a hole in their groin? Right. And the answer is yes, we can always hold pressure because we actually are more successful in extracting the clot when TPA is already on board because it kind of softens up those borders of the clot so it's not adhered to the wall and you can grab hold of it and pull it out a little bit better. And when I say you, not like me, this is the interventional neurologist that's doing that procedure. Okay, yeah. Can you do a thrombectomy without TPA on board? Yes. Oh, that's a great question. Some patients aren't candidates for TPA, but they are candidates for thrombectomy. So let's talk about that. Every hospital has their own criteria. So I'm not speaking blanket across the board, but generally speaking, there's a couple of things you want to know before we administer TPA. So the first is what is the window with which these symptoms have been going on? And I hear this get confused a lot. People say, when did this start? I would never ask when did this start? I want to ask when was the last time they were seen normal? Because the nurse might say, oh, well, I woke up at 7 a.m. and that's whenever I found them this way. So 7 a.m. is our start time. Oop. Maybe not. When was the patient last awake and alert and at their baseline? 
Was it last night when they went to bed at 9 p.m.? Or did they wake up and go to the bathroom at 2 a.m.? Or had they, whatever, had they just woken up for their 6 a.m. Men's ladder? We need to know when's the last time they were normal because the window that we give TPA for is, depends on the patient, it's either three hours or four and a half hours from the last time they were seen normal. So some patients were outside of the window. You know, the last time they were seen normal was 9 p.m. last night, and the nurse is just waking them at 7 a.m. shift report, so they're not a candidate for TPA, but they would be a candidate for thrombectomy. Our hospital, I think most are too, thrombectomy is a 24-hour window, and honestly, that window might even be getting bigger. New research comes out all the time. You know, when I started as a nurse, it was a three-hour window, a very tight, strict three-hour window for TPA, and now it's expanded to four and a half because we found there's still benefit up to four and a half hours. And thrombectomy used to be six hours, and now it's 24. So evidence-based practice changes all the time, as you know, but currently 24 hours for thrombectomy, four and a half hours for TPA. But if we're if we miss that window for the TPA, or the patient's already on blood thinners and their INR is two and a half, or they had a recent bleed somewhere, a recent surgery. For example, we have lots of heart surgery patients that when they wake up from their surgery, they're having stroke-like symptoms and they did have a stroke. It happens when you put patients on heart-lung bypass. They did have a stroke. They're definitely not a candidate for TPA. We just cut their chest open, but they are a candidate for thrombectomy. And we've seen just amazing results, patients going for thrombectomy, extracting the clot, and then they can go back to their baseline. So I'm so glad you asked that. TPA is awesome. Thrombectomy is even more awesome. And (laughs) especially for patients that aren't candidates for TPA, there's lots of, it's pretty strict criteria who can get it and who cannot get it. Are there any restrictions for thrombectomy besides time, like location of the blood clot? So everyone's anatomy is different. Some people just have such small vasculature, they can't even get the wire into where it needs to go. So it's not that they're not a candidate for thrombectomy, it's that when they get in there, they discover we can't actually fix this. It's rare, but that does happen. It's all case by case, but I'm assuming there's gotta be some sort of procedures that have happened vascularly that make it very hard to get a wire up into the brain. But for the most part, they'll still try it. Every patient that has stroke symptoms, it appears to be an ischemic stroke. It looks like a large vessel occlusion we want to give them that chance at getting their life back. And so they'll go for the thrombectomy, even if they might discover once they get in there that, oh, this patient's anatomy doesn't allow for this procedure to be successful. Yeah. So who performs a thrombectomy? I think almost all the time, it's a neurointerventionalist. Okay. <laughs> interventional neurologist. So this is a doctor who is a neurologist and they're also board certified as an interventional radiologist. So these guys have been in school for a long time and this is their specialty. The procedure is so cool to watch. It's almost like the doctors playing video games. Like there's a big screen and they have like buttons and knobs that they're turning and pushing. We're not opening the patient's brain at all. Everything is done through a hole in the groin and they're just manipulating this catheter around and sucking the thing out and just giving this patient their life back. But it's all done as if they're playing video games on a big screen. And they're seeing the images through like fluoroscopy. Fluoroscopy. Got it. Very cool. So thrombectomy is not the only TPA and thrombectomy are not the only interventions. Can you talk about what a ventriculostomy? Sure. So we've talked a lot about the interventions for ischemic stroke. So when there's a clot in the brain that's obstructing flow, and we're trying to save what's called the penumbra. So the area around the clot that is not dead yet, we're trying to 
salvage that. That's the part we're trying to save there for ischemic stroke. So TPA breaks through the clot to restore flow. Thrombectomy sucks on the clot to restore flow. Okay, so that's ischemic stroke. For a hemorrhagic stroke, totally different interventions. So hemorrhagic stroke is when a blood vessel has burst inside the brain and the bleeding is now causing these stroke-like symptoms. So one, bleeding is irritating to the brain tissue. Two, it's taking up space in the brain, compressing the brain tissue itself. So that can cause symptoms. So one way to alleviate the symptoms is to basically put a drain inside the brain and pull off some extra CSF to make more room. So I'm sure you remember from nursing school, the Monroe Kelly doctrine. <laughs> Everyone's like, what? <laughs> that is the theory that the skull is a closed vault. And inside the skull, there are three components. So brain tissue, cerebral spinal fluid, and then blood volume itself. And that's really all that's in there. But because it's a closed vault, if any one of those components is increasing in size, well, the other two components are forced to shrink down in size. And that's where we have the problem. So if we have a hemorrhagic stroke, it's not like, oh my God, they're hemorrhaging to death. No, it's not that much blood but it's enough blood to compress the other components. So now there's less space for CSF and there's less space for the brain tissue itself. So when you look on the CAT scan, sometimes you'll see what's called a quote unquote shift. And that's where the brain tissue is literally squished and squished to one side. And that causes those terrible symptoms we see, the change in level of consciousness or the pupillary changes or Cushing's triad, which is where the systolic goes up and the diastolic goes down. The patient gets bradycardic. They have like funky respiratory system where they're big gasp and then long pauses and little shallow breaths, like no pattern at all to their breathing. All those things tell us there's increased intracranial pressure. And so it's not a permanent fix, but a temporary fix to temporarily make a little more space inside that closed vault is we literally drill a hole with a drill. I mean, it's a sterile one with the drill into the brain and feed a little catheter kind of looks like a miniature feeding tube or like a little miniature Foley catheter, feed it into the brain. And now we can pull off some of that excess CSF in the blood to make more space because there's no way to make more space, right? It's not like when you injure your arm, it's going to swell, but there's room for swelling to go. Your arm is stretchy. Your skull, it's not stretchy. And no. <laughs> so if there's swelling that's happening and swelling will happen when there's bleeding in the brain, it gets really pissed off when there's blood touching it. So swelling starts to happen. The bleeding's filling that space. There's nowhere for it to go. So we make some of it to go with a ventriculostomy. As you can imagine, this is a very high-risk procedure, definitely done by a very trained clinician, a neurosurgeon. At our hospital, we'll do them right there at the bedside. Like we will do it in IR. We'll do it in the ER, do it in the ICU. It's not something you have to go to the operating room for. Oftentimes it is like this patient is about to die if we don't make space inside their skull right now. And so the idea of waiting to go to the OR is not often in the patient's best interest. We need to do it as soon as possible. So at a comprehensive stroke center, ER nurses, IC nurses, and interventional radiology nurses are all trained for how to set that up at the bedside and do it right there. So I have like so many questions about ventriculostomy. I just, I personally don't know much about it. I don't work in a, a neuro floor. So I was wondering when we're talking about a hemorrhagic stroke, you know, kind of going back to the beginning of our discussion here of assessing a patient who's having a CVA, is their presentation different than someone who's having an ischemic stroke? 
generally speaking, yes, but we cannot prove anything or go drilling in anybody's skull until we have a CAT scan. So I, my gut might say this looks like a bleed, but we're not going to do any intervention until we can prove it with CT. So your ischemic stroke presentations often are those like unilateral weakness, slurred speech, that kind of stuff. When you start getting like the gaze deviation or like change in breathing pattern, or the patient is completely aphasic, not even trying to talk to you, like not responding to you, that often is the bleeds. But again, I have seen, I've seen the gamut of stroke-like symptoms and been surprised. Sometimes I thought it was hemorrhagic and it turned out being ischemic. There's been times when I thought it was ischemic and it turns out it's hemorrhagic. So really the CAT scan is the telltale, like the required diagnostic test to determine what path are we going down, TPA and thrombectomy or ventriculostomy, craniotomy, ICU. I mean, it, it really, the CAT scan is so, so important. Yeah, yeah. I've had patients in the past for whom we're, we're worried about brain bleeding. And I kind of got the sense once from listening to a doctor talk about the patient that doing this, the NIH scale isn't necessarily as helpful as just seeing the patient globally, because you're not necessarily going to get that unilateral change, but more of a, like a system-wide change, right? Like altered mental status, gaze, aphasia. If you think about what's happening with an ischemic stroke, you have one point in the brain that has a clot. And so the surrounding areas of that part of the brain, frontal lobe, occipital lobe, whatever, wherever the spot is, it's going to have symptoms related to it. So very specific symptoms, left-sided weakness, left-sided paralysis, left-sided facial droop, left or third speed, whatever the thing is. But for a hemorrhagic stroke, you have global symptoms because the whole brain, the whole thing is being squished. The blood flow to the whole thing is being impaired. And so the biggest symptom you're going to see initially is change in mental status. That is your big clue that, oh, something is altered. Wait, they were talking to me and now they're having a hard time talking or now they're not waking up even worse or now they're not responding to pain even worse. So like the level of severity is going to increase as the hemorrhagic stroke evolves. And so, yes, there are some very end signs like Cushing's triad or pupillary changes, but that first one as the bedside nurse you're going to clue into is altered level of consciousness. Again, why it's so important to know what is the baseline. I, we've had times when the family were the ones who were like, he's not waking up like he normally does. And the family is the one that says, can we please get someone to look at him? And the family is the one that discovered this patient is having a hemorrhagic stroke. Whereas the nurse was like, oh, they're good. They finally fell asleep. Oh, good. Oh, they were, look, they're snoring. Oh, good. I'm glad they're finally getting some rest. They had a long night. They look so peaceful. They look so comfortable. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So you were talking about ventriculostomy as an intervention for hemorrhagic strokes. Is that the only intervention? Are there other things you can do to decrease ICP or is it really just the ventriculostomy? That's kind of the gold standard. There's also like a burr hole procedure that'll kind of release pressure. Some patients need a craniotomy where they go and literally cut the thing open and clear out the blood manually. And I'm no neurosurgeon to say which patient gets which intervention. I just know I see in my role, I see a lot of ventriculostomies right now, emergently. We got to make space in the brain right now. And then often I don't see what happens afterwards. Okay. So maybe they go to the OR or maybe they just go to the ICU and give it time and manage the ICP appropriately. 
and it all depends on patient presentation and comorbidities and how old is the patient? Is it worth doing brain surgery on a 96 year old? You know, like these are all the questions that the neurosurgeon has to consider because obviously brain surgery is a huge risk. And when you add comorbidities, it makes it even more risky. So I have seen patients just make a full recovery that I did not think they were going to come back to us. You know, their pupils are blown and then they walk out the door. And I've also seen patients who came in talking to us, just complaining of a headache. And then the brain bleed just evolved so quickly and they ended up passing. So neuro is a tough one because you can't quite predict the outcome the same way that you do with say like heart patients where you're like, okay, well, their EF is this and their lab values are this. So we think that they're going to be able to you know, do well with this medical regimen and neuro, you never know. And then sometimes these patients, they'll go for the craniotomy. They'll get the ventriculostomy. They'll be doing so good. They're like up in the chair, eating jello. And then they vasospasm. And that is really hard to predict too. So your vasospasm window, I want to say is like 21 days. It's a long time. So you're not really out of the woods until that phase has passed. So props to the neuro nurses, because it'll rip your heart out sometimes when you're like, yes, they're getting better. Oh no, they phase is bad. Like it's really hard. And the decline happens really quickly. Yeah. Once once that bleeding hits their brain, they start having symptoms pretty quick. Is there any role for like osmotic agents in this? Like, like mannitol, for example. There is. So there's two big drugs that we give. Mannitol is one. I like to call it brain Lasix because it's kind of like a diuretic (laughs) to help pull the fluid out. Mm -hmm. So if you think about a brain itself, the brain cells themselves are swollen. So we can give brain Lasix or mannitol and kind of pull some of that fluid and have them diurese that off. So mannitol is helpful. We also give hypertonic saline like really hypertonic, 23.4% hypertonic saline, which is a crazy salty solution. And if you think about osmosis, how that works, if you have a high concentration of salt in the blood because you gave hypertonic saline, because of osmosis, same process, it'll pull the fluid out of the cells and pull it into the bloodstream. So that decreases the swelling inside the brain. But whenever you do that, so we pull fluid from cells to bloodstream, now you're going to increase the blood volume and with it, increase the blood pressure. And some neuropatients do well with more blood pressure. Some neuropatients, that's risky. You don't want to make their blood pressure too high. So this is more ICU nurse thinking, but when you're deciding, okay, do they need mannitol? Do they need hypertonic saline? You have to think about what are their vital signs doing? What is their osmolarity right now? What is their sodium level? What's the best treatment for this patient? Considering what's their blood pressure? What's their, so like, we have to think through all those things to choose the best one because mannitol is going to make you pee a bunch. So your blood pressure will drop versus hypertonic saline is going to shift fluid into your bloodstream, increasing your blood pressure. So what does this patient need? Are we prepared to combat that with either vasopressors or antihypertensives, depending on what the outcome of that drug is? Got it. And is this done in conjunction with something like ventriculostomy or burr hole? Yeah. 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 So it, it is all hands on deck when you have a brain bleed. So I've got one nurse over there rapidly setting up the ventriculostomy and getting ready for the procedure. I have the next nurse priming the tubing for the mannitol and the hypertonic saline and getting the central line stuff together because you had to have a central line for hypertonic saline for 23.4% hypertonic saline. So someone's getting the drugs going. Someone else is titrating other drips to make sure the blood pressure is stable. There is so much going on to stabilize this patient. And, you know, a lot of times like 
the cool cases in the movies is like, there's blood everywhere. This patient is a patient that's laying there still in the bed. They don't necessarily look sick, but man, so much is happening inside their skull. And so we have to act really fast or they're going to lose brain tissue permanently. Yeah. Yeah. So we've talked about ischemic strokes. We've talked about hemorrhagic and sometimes, unfortunately, you can get a combination of the two. So I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, the risks associated with TPA and a hemorrhagic conversion. Sure. So I want to start by saying TPA, when I started my career, was considered this huge risk drug and it was a very narrow criteria for who could get it. But the more studies we did, we found out actually patients do pretty well with this stuff. And we're going to increase the window to four and a half hours. And very, very few patients have poor outcomes. Statistically, about, and it depends on which study you read, about four to 5% of patients will have what we call hemorrhagic conversion, which is where they started with an ischemic stroke, a clot. We gave the clot buster, the TPA, and now, whoops, now they're bleeding into their brain. And now we have a hemorrhagic stroke where we started with an ischemic stroke. So hemorrhagic conversion, that is the worst case scenario. That's what we're really worried is going to happen. And yes, you could have bleeding for other spots. Like your IV line might bleed, your Foley might bleed. They could bleed anywhere. Their gums might bleed, but the bleeding I'm really concerned about is bleeding to the brain. So 5% to me is very low risk. If it was my grandma, I'd say, yeah, give them the TPA. However, we can reduce or like mitigate some of the risk by going faster. <laughs> so the closer we get to that window, that four and a half hour window, the higher risk for hemorrhagic conversion. Because if you think about it, the longer we have ischemia going on, th those, the brain cells, the tissue gets very friable, very delicate whenever it's lacking oxygen. So the longer it's been lacking oxygen, the more sensitive it is and the more likely it's going to convert or to bleed out. So in my experience, working at a comprehensive stroke center where our door to needle time, which is the time that rolled into the door at the time we get a TPA is about 20 minutes. Because we're so fast, we rarely see hemorrhagic conversion. But I know other facilities, maybe like rural hospitals where it's taken the patient an hour to get to the hospital or they blew off their symptoms for two hours prior. You know, So we're at close to that four and a half hour window. The closer you get to that, the increase risk of hemorrhagic conversion. So it's not like, oh, we got four and a half hours. Like we don't have to run. It's okay. We still got an hour left. We'll just wait for it to come from the pharmacy. You know, I'm going to go on my lunch break and I'll come back and get the TPA. Absolutely not. Because the longer we wait, not only are brain cells dying, but also the more risk for a bad outcome from the drug we tried to give to save them. So that 5%, I, in my career, do not see a 5% hemorrhagic conversion. I don't know what the stats are for my hospital, but it's definitely not that high. What I see is patients that recover usually, but I have seen, how many times, but I think I have personally seen hemorrhagic conversion three times and I've been a nurse 18 years. So I know that it happens more than that. I mean, that's what the stats show, but going faster and making sure you're using good criteria for who gets TPA and who doesn't, all those things contribute to decreasing hemorrhagic conversion. The other thing which seems silly is blood sugar. <laughs> If the blood sugar is high when we're giving TPA and while we're infusing it, that also makes the cells kind of more sensitive and more at risk for bleeding. So we actually really want to control blood sugar too. 
Now it's not like we would say, oh, no TPA for you. You got diabetes. No, <laughs> those are the patients that get to, those patients that get strokes, right? So we just want to make sure we're controlling the blood sugar well. And then the other factor that really contributes to hemorrhagic conversion is patients whose blood pressure is getting too high. So when patients get TPA, we're taking the vital signs every 15 minutes. We are doing neuro assessments every 15 minutes. Like it is a, this is a really labor intensive patient because you're in that room all the time, messing with that patient, figuring out what they're, do they have weakness on one side or the other? Can they answer these questions? How are there people like you're doing a neuro assessment every 15 minutes? So the patients get to be like, oh, she's back again. But it's so important to see how is their blood pressure doing? Because obviously if we have increasing blood pressure, with clot busters running through the vessels, we're way more at risk of rupturing. So we have to keep the blood pressure down. So there's less stretch on those vessels and less risk of rupture. So you have to keep the systolic less than 180 while you're giving TPA. We kind of shoot for more like 140, less mm-hmm. than 140. One last thing I'd like to touch on is this, the vasospasms that you were mentioning. I know this kind of goes beyond what you do as a rapid response nurse, but as an ICU nurse, I was wondering if you could talk about what exactly vasospasms are in the setting of stroke? Well, it's just what it sounds like. The blood vessel itself, which used to be open, well, now it's spasming and clamping down. So you're basically, the vessels are causing what would be like a stroke, but not from an occlusion. Now it's just because the vessel has no more flow. It's it's clamping down on itself. So vasospasm symptoms would be the same ones that you would see with a stroke whatever part, whatever vessel is vasospasming, the tissue surrounding it is going to create symptoms, stroke-like symptoms, slurred speech, change in mental status, like all all the same ones, right? There's drugs that we give to try to prevent it. Nemotapine is the drug that we usually give. And it's so important to give that drug on the dot when it's ordered, not to skip a dose, because that's how we prevent vasospasm. Patients that we think are vasospasming, and again, you can't tell just like looking at them, you could assume They'll take them back to the IR suite, the same place that they did the thrombectomy or whatever procedure, and they can kind of shoot dye and see where the spasm is and sometimes give localized therapy to vasodilate and open that blood vessel. So and why does We've it had have... patients go back for vasospasm three and four times oh, before wow. their vessels finally calm down and they can be downgraded to the PCU, let's say, or to the floor. Wow. So what is it about stroke that causes these vasospasms? There are tissue that's been irritated. It's been injured. It's lacking oxygen. So just like when the heart muscle is lacking oxygen, it goes into arrhythmias. The tissue in the brain acts funny too whenever it's lacking oxygen. Vasospasming is, is a big concern. And what is the time window that you were mentioning earlier about like when you expect like vasospasms to occur if they do occur? So after a bleed into the brain, patients are at risk for this up to 21 days. The first like three to seven days is the highest risk, but they're not out of the woods until that 21 day mark. So I've definitely seen patients that were doing really good or so we thought, and then at day 18, they vasospasmed and then did not recover. So as a nurse, you're still being very vigilant with your neuro assessments, even though they seem like they're walking with physical therapy and they're doing so much better, they're still at risk for vasospasm. And if they were to have vasospasm, they can still go back to intervention neurology and they can give medications like at the site of the vasospasm to force it to vasodilate and restore flow to the blood tissue. I could see where it wouldn't just be in a neuro ICU, like it could also be in a, a step-down unit, PCU, where you could see vasospasms. If we're talking about like up to 20 days after, yeah, that could absolutely be out of ICU. 
So Sarah, this has been really helpful to talk to you today about stroke. Is there anything that you would like our the listeners to take away from our discussion today? Yes, yes. So I don't think there's much more that I want to add, but really just to reemphasize how important the bedside nurse is in early recognition of the signs and symptoms of stroke and in coming alongside the stroke team and getting this intervention for the patient. Like our hustle makes a difference in the patient's outcome and what you know about the patient is going to help guide our therapy. So be prepared when the stroke team shows up, want to be present, don't run away, stay, and be able to speak to how do they usually act? How is this different? What is their last blood pressure? Because we don't want to give TPA to a high blood pressure. What is your last blood sugar? Because we don't want to get TPA when they just need dextrose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then are they on any blood thinners? Because some blood thinners would keep the patient from getting TPA. So like Coumadin or, I mean, there's a lot of drugs that would keep it. Aspirin and Plavix, we'd still give the TPA for, but we want to know like, what's their most recent INR? How are their platelets? That kind of stuff, be prepared to speak to that. And then any recent surgeries and all that, we don't know that stuff. We're so dependent on the primary nurse to know. And then hustling to get to CAT scan. And you're probably like, why are we, where's everybody going? (laughs) Well, we can't do anything for this patient until we know what's happening inside the skull. So we can know, are we going on the track of giving a clot buster and a thrombectomy? Or are we going on the track of ventriculostomy? We can't do either one until we know what we're working with there. So get your nurse tech in the room, clear a path to get to CAT scan, disconnect everything from the wall, the tube feeds, disconnect them, like move the bedside table over, like make space to be able to move out of the room. And then the family is so important. Trust, trust what they have to say. They can pick up on the little nuance changes that maybe we wouldn't know because we don't know the patient as well as they do. So just trusting the family whenever they're concerned, you should be concerned too. I really appreciate that. Sarah, I also wanted to give you a chance to talk about this course that you made. Yes, I'm so excited about it. So in my career, I get the same questions all the time. Sarah, how do you stay so calm? Sarah, how did you know what to do? Sarah, how are you not freaking out right now? Sarah, what did, how do you know what to look for first? Like all these questions and it's stuff that kind of, it took me years to really figure out what's the priority when I'm responding to a patient that's crashing. What are my most important assessment finds? I'm not going to assess a gazillion things right now, but what am I zoning into right now? How do I handle my own stress when the patient is crashing and I'm, my hands are shaking? How do I mitigate that? So it's stuff that I wish a senior nurse would have just taken me and sat me down and explained it all to me, but it took me years to really kind of gather all that stuff, put the pieces together. So I made it to a course. It's a quick one hour course. It's accredited by the AACN, the American Association of Critical Care Nurses. It's an online class. You can take it at your leisure, watch it from your phone, whatever. And then when you finish it, you take a little test and you get a CEU. The nurses that have taken it so far, every one of them's emailed me and said, this was so helpful. It really helped me like hone in my focus. It gave me the confidence to advocate for the patient, to follow my gut intuition. I realized, oh, why is the patient diaphoretic? What's happening right now? Why is the patient skin like this? Why am I so focused on whatever it is? It's been really helpful to other nurses. And that's why I made it. I I love helping patients, but I know that I can help even more patients if I equip nurses with the knowledge and skills and confidence to respond to emergencies. So I hope that it just continues to help more people. If you want to find the course, it's called Rapid Response and Rescue. So www.rapidresponseandrescue.com. If you want, you can find me on Instagram. I'm at the Rapid Response RN. If you just DM me like 
course or podcast or just one word, something about the class, I'll send you a coupon code just so it's easy for you to sign up and get $10 off the course. I'm really excited to launch it. You know, the podcast is free. It's like quick little episodes, 20, 30 minute episodes. The course is a full hour long and I feel like it kind of goes a little bit more in depth. I'm actually in the process of building an even more in-depth course. It's going to be probably like 15 CEUs, but I'm still like writing the curriculum for that. So that'll hopefully come out in the new year, but even more in-depth body system, like the patient has low blood pressure. Here's all the things I'm looking for and ruling out and managing. It's basically training for how to be a rapid response nurse to what that would be. But for now, this is just a quick introduction, not just for new nurses, even experienced nurses. If you're not running to emergencies every day, it's often things you don't think about. So just helping you kind of hone in your assessment to, to look for what could be going on underneath. Do you think it could be beneficial to nurses who are not rapid response nurses? Oh, that's who it's meant for. Absolutely. Yeah. But really it's for any, if you work labor delivery, this is, it's helpful for you too. You know, if you work in an outpatient setting, it's really good to know what's the worst case scenario, what you're looking for. I mean, any nurse can benefit from that, but I think it's the nurses that often work in the acute care setting that are like, oh shoot, I got to know this stuff because any patient could crash at any moment. Right. So they have that motivation to, I want to advance my professional development so that I am at the top of my game. I am performing well for these patients, you know, like they, they're relying on us to know what to do when something goes wrong. They often can't speak for themselves. So how can we advocate for them? How can we recognize what's going on and speak up and make a difference in their outcome? That's why I made the class. That's awesome. And again, what is it called? Rapidresponseandrescue.com. And then my podcast is Rapid Response RN. And then on Instagram, I am the Rapid Response RN. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you so much for being on today, Sarah. Oh, I really enjoyed pleasure, this discussion. Annie. Yes, I could talk about stroke all day long. This is so much fun talking with you about it. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you like this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email with questions or comments, and it would mean so much if you could take a moment to write a review on iTunes, as this helps more listeners find this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport. So trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. You've been listening to the Rapid Response RN podcast. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing and your patient's care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponsernpodcast at gmail.com or on the Rapid Response RN Podcast Facebook page, as well as the podcast website, rapidresponsern.com.